The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I don't have to be the one to tell you that getting around South Africa and getting around most of Africa is not always the easiest thing to do. Road infrastructure, rail infrastructure, port infrastructure are some of the worst in the world. And even though there's been billions of dollars invested over the past few years, largely by the Chinese, but not exclusively. It's gotten better in some places, but for the most part, transcontinental transportation is a nightmare. The colonial powers built rail systems that really went to the borders and didn't cross the borders. So a French territorial colony would then butt up against a British or another country's, and they wouldn't use the same railway gauge, they wouldn't use the same links. And so it really has retarded the development of transcontinental railroad, rail, and also, you know, roads is most importantly. So the infrastructure is something that is, you know, suffering for such a long time. And there's been this dream of this pan-African dream that one day we will have a pan-African highway and we'll have pan-African rail service. And that dream, Cobus, is starting to come together piece by piece, in part due to the Chinese, who are building up a number of different assets in the space. They're not necessarily building it with the mindset that there's going to be a Pan-African rail link, but it's starting to take shape. And you wrote a kind of this speculative piece, this what-if piece, can China realize Africa's dream of an east-west transport link? And you don't even, you don't just talk about east-west, but you also talk about north-south and all around. And so why don't you kind of answer the question right up front, can China actually help Africa get to this long-held goal? Well, this is the big question. I think, you know, I think China can. China certainly has the money. The issue more is how it will work and what some what some of the complications about it is. And also, you know, kind of one of the things that to keep in mind about Africa is one of the reasons why Africa has such bad infrastructure is because Africa is just incredibly big. It's huge. So, for example, the one one of the big highways that I look at is uh, a highway um, that runs from Dakar in Senegal on Africa's west coast to N'Djamena in Chad, and it's a massive highway. It's a, it's a highway called Trans African Highway Number Five, and that one is completed. That highway is as far, is a little bit further actually than the distance between New York City and San Francisco, and. That's only halfway across the continent. The dream that I'm describing in this in this article, the dream of having a, a one highway running all the way from Dakar in the west to Djibouti in the east, running across the kind of fat part of Africa, you know, through the Sahel, that is the equivalent of building a highway from New York City to Midway Atoll in the Pacific. That is how big it is. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking, still talking about African infrastructure in terms of a dream that needs to be achieved in the future. Yeah, you could imagine if this east-west highway and rail links come alive. I mean, what the potential that will unlock is just tremendous in terms of business and culture and the movement of people and goods and all the things that will happen. But at the end of the day, there's a reason why it hasn't happened, in part because a lot of people talk about Africa as a single entity. But at the end of the day, 
It's 54 countries. And within those 54 countries, there are, you know, thousands of subcultures, factions, groups, you know, all these different interests that make this kind of mass planning very, very difficult. So when you if you were an odds maker, which I know you're not a betting man, but if you were, how realistic do you think this dream is? Or is it just really something that people like fantasize about and idealize? But at the end of the day, it really won't happen in any meaningful way. It's a little bit more realistic than that, um, in the sense that there are action plans in place. There are components, the wider projects have been broken down into components. Some of those components are actually being built. And there's, you know, there's money in place for some of them and actually delivery dates for some of them. So, for example, like um, this, this dream that I've been describing, which is essentially like connecting Dakar with Djibouti, the first part of that, you know, the Dakar to Ndamina in Chad has been connected by, by interlinking highways. There's a, a second project that's supposed to connect those two via rail as well. Some of those rail sections between Senegal and Mali are being built. They are, you know, they, they have delivery dates. The, the one is supposed to be done by 2022. So, you know, there's definitely parts of it that's happening. But when you talk about the length of highway and rail that needs to be installed, you run up a bit against a few big realities. One is that towards the east, that connection between Chad and Djibouti runs through some pretty crazy territory. It runs through parts of Sudan, which, are, which is dealing with a lot of, of issues with militants. And it also runs across quite challenging terrain, like rocky, mountainy terrain in parts of Ethiopia. So just in terms of logistics, security and cost, it's an expensive thing to do. There are two pieces. I just want to break down when you're talking, because you brought in now Sudan into this. There's Trans-Africa Highway 5, which again starts in Dakar and then ends in Chad. And then that connects to Trans-Africa Highway 6, which starts in Chad and ends all the way in Djibouti. Now, you talked about this in Sudan and the security issues like this. If anything that we've learned over the Sudanese civil war over the past, say, what, 15 years it's gone on now, is that those types of pipelines and connections and rails and roads become currency in civil wars, that factions use those to blow them up. So let's talk about the security of this. It doesn't seem feasible that in a lot of these countries, whether it's Chad or Mali, which are not exactly stable, particularly because they're facing Muslim insurgencies in some parts. What is the case for making this be a sustainable project, given the fact that there are such severe security concerns? Well, one would need political will. And for that, you would need resources being thrown behind the plans by both African governments, the African Union and, and by China. I mean, it's it's going to be difficult, but at the same time, China is running similar kind of risks in its Belt and Road Initiative. You know, so big parts of the Belt and Road Initiative, especially the overland rail connections through Central Asia, go through even more contested um, areas than, than in Sudan, like, for example, through Kashmir, you know, and through, through very complicated parts of Pakistan. And so China, I think, is learning a lot about how to put in infrastructure in some of those areas. In according to the Financial Times recently, some of those projects, Belt and Road projects, end up being abandoned. Though. So we'll have to see, you know, how much of it actually happens. But in, in terms of, of, of putting in complicated infrastructure in very complicated areas, you know, China, I think, is developing developing a, a unique set of skills to deal with well, that. Cer certainly on this scale as well. There's pretty much yeah. nobody else that can build at this scale. I mean, it's enormous. I'm looking at this graphic that you had in your article that was published uh, back on April 9th on the Jamestown Foundation website. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. 
It's a remarkable graphic. I mean, if this came true, what a day that would be for Africa. All these intersecting kind of transport links and roads and transcontinental highways. And it's just really interesting. I see what's in it for Africa and the African states that these roads pass through. What's in it for China to do this? For China, it would essentially open up a more than one billion person market. You know, if you could put in these these rail and, and road links, that would turn Africa into a, a complicated mix of little markets uh, into one big continental market. So there is there is a lot of, of long term incentives for other Chinese businesses to you know to kind of get in on this because it would unlock essentially the world's largest as yet unexplored and you know unsaturated consumer goods market. That is part of one, you know, of, of why Africa is so intent on getting some of this work done in the first place. At the moment, intra-African trade stands at about 15% of all African trade. And one of the reasons for that is because it's so expensive to get stuff from one side of the continent to the other. So there's this classic study that came out in, in 2010 that the World Bank did, where they worked out that it's actually cheaper to get a car from Japan to Addis Ababa than to get that same car overland from Addis Ababa to the Ivory Coast in West Africa. So it's actually cheaper to get it literally from Asia to Africa than to get it across Africa. It tends to drive up prices right across the African economy, including things like Africans pay, just pay more, you know, per unit of a whole bunch of different products because they're carrying so many tariffs and so many, you know, kind of bribes and, and cross-border expenses. So the African Union and, and the African continent just signed a massive continental free trade agreement. So this, this agreement is aimed at boosting intra-African trade. It's a massive achievement, especially in, in this moment where the whole world is retreating from free trade. You know, Africa is taking the step towards free trade. And it has the potential of really, really kind of kickstarting big parts of African trade to other African countries. But key to that would be this kind of road and rail system, just to get stuff across the continent faster. Yeah, I'm going to be a little bit more skeptical than you on this, because I'm not so sure. And again, I don't know. You have a, a lot more insights on this than I do. But I'm not so sure that the Chinese would do this to unlock the one billion people in this market, in part because the total value of the African market is still less than Germany, just Germany, not the European Union, but just Germany. And so the value overall of Africa to a Chinese company is relatively small. I mean, looking at it in pure kind of economic terms. So I'm not sure. But, and the other problem is that they're opening it up. It's not only Chinese companies that would be able to benefit from that, but French companies, American companies, the British, everybody would be able to take advantage of these roads. It's not like it was in colonial times where a road belonged to the host country, the imperial power, and they were able to kind of control access to that road. These roads would be open for everybody. So when I ask the question of who is really going to gain here on the Chinese side, I'm starting to think about the banks. And I'm wondering, are most of the financing for this concessional loans, these low interest loans, or are they grants that China is doing as part of its Belt and Road and some other, and other initiatives or other kind of ways that it's not adding on more debt to African countries? 
As far as I understand, the, the you know, there isn't really one answer to that. It depends very much. It's project by project agreements. Um, the ones that I looked at, as far as I understand, were loans, uh, loan yeah. interest loans. In Senegal, uh, it was um, for, for a rail project there, it was a $1.4 billion loan payable over 30 years at 2% interest. So that is the kind of, it's a relatively soft loan with a longer payback period. But, you know, it still is a loan. So Africa has to take that into account. Well, so it's really not China realizing this dream. It's Africans realizing this dream because they're paying yes. for it in the end. No one's doing this for them. And that's yes. kind of scary in one sense. Let me bring up another issue that I'm sure has come up in your conversations and the research you did coming into this. There's been a lot of questions about the quality of Chinese infrastructure in parts of Africa and that it varies so much. Some of it is very good, but we've also seen these photos on Instagram and other places where a road is put in and within six, seven months, it's already starting to fall apart. Any concerns that you came across about the quality of the roads that would come on a trans-east-west transport link? That issue is always in the conversation, but it very frequently depends so much on, on African governance. So if the African countries make sure that they that their governance and quality control systems are in place, then it's generally fine. And of course, you know, if they're not in place, then it's not only Chinese infrastructure that's that's problematic. You know, it's all infrastructure. Like if, you know, if companies know that they will be able to get away with cutting corners, then they will do that. So it very much comes down on the African government. One quick thing. I mean, do you really think Mali, and no disrespect to Mali, but but Mali is a country facing enormous difficulties like the DRC, that maintaining infrastructure and keeping standards and doing the things that you suggest is really not a high priority given all the other things that it has to grapple with. So this idea, this is why I still... I'm skeptical that this dream will ever be realized in part because of the other challenges that face so many of these countries that these roads have to go through. I share your skepticism. What, what I tend to think is not that the dream will 100% not be realized, but it might be realized in a kind of a piecemeal, you know, okay. cobbled together kind of way, in the way that, that Africa frequently works, you know, kind of where there's some of those sections of highway would look great and others won't look so great. And like, and, and people will kind of make it work, you know, kind of the, the way that they frequently do. What for me is actually uh, harder to imagine would be that uh, that Africa will just never have a, a kind of a you know east-west or, or north-south transport corridor. I mean, difficult to imagine that in say hundred years Africa still is not connected in that way. You know, it might well be that way, but like it's, it just seems like this kind of, you know, it, it raises so many other questions then, you know, especially in the context. And this is, you know, all, all of this happens within the context that Africa is the, the world's youngest population. So the median age for African people are, is 18. And, you know, in, in the future, by 2100, one quarter of all people on Earth are going to be African. So, you know, it's a very, very young population. It's the only place really, only unified big market that really still has a youth dividend on the way. So, you know, either there's going to be some kind of development coming out of that youth dividend the way that there's been in China, for example, the way that Lauren Johnson pointed out, um, you know, in a recent podcast. Or there's not, in which case all bets are off and we, we're dealing with a, with a really, really disruptive situation. So to a certain extent, Africa is standing in, you know, before this, in front of this big crossroads. They have to develop. If they don't develop, there's going to be chaos. There is some room for optimism. So I expressed some skepticism earlier on, but let me give a little bit of optimism and we'll connect this back to the Chinese as well. It was not that long ago when you and I were younger, I mean, just maybe 20 years ago, we're revealing our age here, Gobas. 
that in order to make an international call from one part of Africa, like say if you're calling from uh, Abidjan and you want to call to another city, say in Chad, that call would be routed through France. It literally had to go, you know, to Europe and then they would route it back down again. There was no direct phone links to many of these countries. Uh, Today, that's not the case. And for a lot of the reasons that go back to ZTE and Huawei and the Chinese who have built enormous amounts of telecom infrastructure across the continent, they're not alone, but they have done a lot to really revolutionize telecommunications in Africa. They don't get the credit that they deserve for that because it's a lot of a lot of it's happening behind the scenes that people don't see, but the network connectivity is remarkable. So we didn't think 20 years ago that it would be possible to move that quickly. So maybe there is some hope in the next 20 years that, okay, the entire continent may not be linked up according to the dream, but big portions of it will be. So for the first time, Ethiopia, a landlocked country, now has access to the sea through a rail link to Djibouti. That's kind of cool and exciting. That happened because of the Chinese and the construction and the loans. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic here. It just may not fulfill the Pan-Africanist dream. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, things I think can pick up momentum. So, for example, like uh, similar to the telephone example you, you mentioned, for a long time, if you had to fly from one part of Africa to another part of Africa, you would do it via Paris or via London. And that is still true in certain cases. But in many cases, you now fly via Addis. You know, like Addis Ababa and Nairobi have are starting to turn themselves very, very rapidly into air travel hubs, not only serving the continent, but increasingly Ethiopia is serving the routes for um, South Americans traveling to Asia. You know, it's an easy kind of like changeover spot if you're going, for example, from, from Buenos Aires to Beijing. So it is possible to, following the example of places like Dubai, you know, kind of that managed to kind of to fulfill, to, to turn themselves into massive logistics hubs relatively rapidly. I don't think that that model is off the table for Africa. It just needs to be paid for, you know. So, so in the end, like just getting the money for it to get it done is both a simple and a complicated problem for Africa. And it has to be paid back. It's the other concerning part of this is the amount of debt that a lot of African countries are taking on in order to fuel this infrastructure development. And it's scary because we're now getting to debt levels that we haven't seen in 30 years in Africa. And a lot of it is being owed to the Chinese, not exclusively as well, but the Chinese are the main borrower or the main lender in this case. And so you hope that time doesn't run out. If there's a shock to the global economic system, if there is a war somewhere in the world, all of that could affect this financing and the ability of African countries to repay this infrastructure debt. So let's hope that nothing like that happens because I would love to be able to drive more conveniently throughout parts of East and West Africa. I think that would be a lot of fun. So there's a graphic that we put that accompanied Cobus's article. We will put that into our website and on LinkedIn and on various places. And we'd love to get your comments on it, what you think. Do you think it's possible? Are you kind of taking the more optimistic view that Cobus is or a little bit more of the skeptical view that I have as to whether this will be possible in its full entirety, in its full glory? Um, we'd love to hear from you. It would be great. And this is a great conversation point because it touches on so many issues of kind of connecting Africa in such exciting ways. So we'd love to hear from you. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Hey, before we go, Kobus, 
We haven't done this in a while. It was about, I'd say, almost six, seven years ago since we last did this, where we kind of bring in some other topics. And there's so many cool little things that are going on right now in the China-Africa relationship that I thought maybe we'd end our show today with a few talking points for what people might want to look out for in the coming weeks ahead. Let's quickly start out that little, you know, rapid fire discussion with uh, gold mining in Cameroon. What's happening there? The Cameroonian government has cracked down on Chinese firms that it accuses of doing illegal mining, gold mining in Cameroon. And it has actually kicked out some of them, like a few of these companies. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye on because it seems to be echoing a situation that we saw a few years ago in Ghana, where where Chinese small-scale miners caused some environmental damage and then got cracked down on by the Ghanaian government. So it might be an interesting kind of indication of new governance, resource governance in, in Africa. Okay. One other story that I'm keeping an eye on right now is the ongoing U.S.-China trade dispute. Steve Mnuchin and trade advisor Lighthouser are going to be deployed by Donald Trump to Beijing. There's a lot of anticipation here in China about the talks that are coming up in an effort to resolve this. And and the connection to Africa is that old saying that when two elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. And commodity exporting countries, particularly in places like Africa and South America, are particularly vulnerable to big sways in the global trading system. And if these two countries go at it uh, as they seem to be going at it right now, and it's very, very scary, there is concerns all up and down Africa that they will suffer tremendously from this. So one story is that there's this consequences and the side effects of the U.S.-China trade dispute. And then one little other, and Cobus, do you have any comments on that before I go to the last story? Not really. I mean, it's just creating a lot of problems from Africa, from an African side, also because it puts the um, African Growth and Opportunity Act, the U.S. Act, that would that makes it easier and cheaper for African countries to export to the U.S. It puts that also up in the air and, and no one is sure whether it will still continue. And, you know, so it, it makes it harder for African industries to plan around that, the idea that it, they would have good access to the U.S. market. So it's, it, it really is, um, you know, everything is kind of in limbo waiting to see what's going to happen. Okay, our last story uh, comes from Beijing, actually. And I was just up in the Chinese capital this week at the uh, Beijing Auto Show, which is now the world's largest car show. So if you are a car buff, this is heaven. It is bigger than anything you possibly can imagine. Bigger than the Detroit Motor Show, than anything in Los Angeles, Geneva. It is just huge. Now, what's interesting is a couple announcements came out this week from the auto show relating to Africa. And and there was a little bit of a surprise to me, but Beijing Automotive Industrial Corporation, BAIC, is one of the largest state-owned auto manufacturers here in China. And they partner with a lot of international manufacturers to produce cars. I don't know who BAIC's partners are, but a lot of these companies partner with Nissan and Toyota and Volvo. Uh, They announced that they're going to start building electric vehicles in South Africa very soon. In fact, starting maybe as soon as June of this year to start turning out electric uh, vehicles. That came on the heels of an announcement earlier in the year that BYD, Build Your Dream, one of the major electrified car makers here in China, is thinking of building in Morocco. Auto manufacturers uh, already are building in Cameroon. And uh, South Africa, of course, being one of the hubs for Chinese auto manufacturing as well. So Africa is really becoming a major center for Chinese auto manufacturing. And, and that's kind of exciting to me. And just to see that South Africa is on the news radar at the Beijing Auto Show, to me, was, was very exciting. 
Yeah, it's very exciting. It'll be also very exciting to see where, you know, where, once they start building the electric cars, like where they are going to go, you know, kind of because a lot of a lot of South African, South Africa exports a lot of cars because it builds a lot of cars. Um, it has big automotive, you know, assembly plants all over the country. And they export a lot of those to Europe and also to the US. And so the South African car industry is also complicatedly affected by by possible trade issues. So it'll be very interesting to see whether these cars are also being will also be sold in Africa and whether there will then be, you know, the the kind of other companies stepping up to start putting in all of the charging points and so on that you need yeah. to, to to run an electric that, car system. There so we go. That's, it's the, the infrastructure question is a big one. But when we talk about electrified vehicles, it's not just pure electric vehicles, which is where you have the charging stations like what you need for a Tesla or a Chevy Bolt, but also partially electrified. So those are hybrid cars. So that's that is one area. So maybe we don't see in Africa and South Africa and some of the more developed African markets full EV technology rolled out anytime soon, but partial EV, uh, hybrid technology will, may, may come very soon. But don't forget that China's interest in the automotive market in Africa doesn't only extend to the manufacturing side, but it's also for the battery technology. One of the key tenants of China, made in China 2025, I think it is, or 20, yeah, 2025, which is their big master plan for the industries they want to control are electrified cars and the battery technology. And of course, minerals like Colton that come out of the DRC are critical to that. And Chinese companies are far more advanced on the supply chain for these minerals. And it's a little bit concerning for a lot of players out there that they may develop a monopoly control of some of these, these strategic minerals that would be used in electrified batteries. So that's another area to keep an eye on. So a lot's going on right now. Hey, a great way to stay on top of everything that that's going on, all the news of the week, is to sign up for our newsletter. Uh, new format's coming out very shortly, but it goes out every Monday. We talk about stories like this in every edition. Top five stories go out, plus we have a long read, and we put our podcast out there. So you can sign up over on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com, and then you can also follow us on and sign up on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. Okay, Kobus, anything else that's on your radar before we take off? No, just final thing in, in relation to the batteries. I just recently ran across a headline that Japan had just discovered a whole bunch of rare earth resources in on its own continental shelf. So Japan, it turns out, sitting on a lot of extremely valuable rare earth resources. I think that's going to got to like really, really kind of um, disrupt and change the role of a place like the, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in in the world that's economy. Right. Because it, you know, traditionally the DRC is one of the few places with rare earth. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. No one wanted to be too dependent on China as they currently are for rare earths. And there's concern that for these other minerals, particularly in the DRC, that uh, that China would gain control and a stranglehold of some of these markets. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. That'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another edition. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.